We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And away we go, episode 138 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Monday, September 6th, 2021, Labor Day. 2021. A happy Labor Day to you and yours. Hopefully you're off on this Labor Day. Hopefully you're not working. You're not laboring on this Labor Day. Some of us, though, are working. Some of us are laboring. That's okay. This is a labor of love, especially in one of the biggest sports weeks of the year. NFL Week 1 is a-coming. Opening night is Thursday night. This Sunday, we get week one in earnest, and I do not mean Ernest Biner. Uh, Our Washington football team faces the Los Angeles Chargers at FedEx Field this Sunday afternoon at one, and it is on this Monday, it is on this Labor Day 2021, that we have a much-anticipated day of Washington football team practice. First of all, because Monday is the day that we were told that Curtis Samuel just might finally practice fully, or at the very least, participate in some team drills. He has not participated in team drills for seemingly forever due to a groin injury that kept him from practicing during the mandatory minicamp back in June. Uh, Samuel, of course, has been doing work on a side field as opposed to fully practicing for weeks here. He is the lord of the side field. He is the master of the domain that is the side field. Someday you'll be able to go on Airbnb and spend a night on the Curtis Samuel side field. Anyway, Ron Rivera at his post-practice press conference on Thursday said that we should expect to see Samuel, quote, work back in on Monday with the team. 
end quote. That could mean full participation in practice. That could mean limited participation in practice, but at least Samuel is off the side field and participating in team drills. Well, here we are now. It is Monday, so we shall see what the situation is with Curtis Samuel. There were no Washington practices Friday through Sunday. That was mandated by the collective bargaining agreement. We do have a practice on this Monday when we also expect to hear Ron get asked about a certain something-something that happened on Friday. The Washington football team signed a kicker. Yeah, we now have competition to at least some extent for Dustin Hopkins. Washington on Friday announced the signing of Eddie Pinheiro to the practice squad. I'm going to talk about that next segment. Also, I have a special guest for you on this Labor Day installment of the Al Galdi podcast. Dan Pizzuta, writer and editor for Sharp Football Analysis. He also wrote the chapter on the Washington football team for Football Outsiders Almanac 2021. Dan is one of the bright minds in NFL analytics, and so we shall do a proper deep dive on the Washington football team. Ryan Fitzpatrick, Terry McLaurin, Washington's offense, Washington's defense, and much more. If you are a fan of the WFT, you're going to enjoy our conversation. We, of course, have had college football on this Labor Day weekend. Big wins for Maryland and Virginia Tech, an expected win for Virginia, and uh, a bad, brutal blowout loss for Navy. I'll be talking about each team's season opener on the show off a 2-1 and one weekend for Goldilocks. No big deal. Hashtag NBD. Make money, money, make money, money, money. Yes, thank you, Snoop. Uh, We have baseball to talk about as well. What a wild last few days for the Nationals in their ongoing five-game series with the New York Mets at Nationals Park. We've already had four games in three days. Three of the four games have felt like the movie Gladiator. Uh, Lengthy, back-and-forth battles, all kinds of twists and turns will take you through what actually matters. And I will properly commemorate an Orioles series win at... The New York Yankees this weekend, including big series for Austin Hayes, Cedric Mullins, and Trey Mancini, and even the teasing of a no-hitter. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. I got a lot of tweets on Maryland's win over West Virginia in College Park on Saturday. A tweet from Death by a Thousand Mango Slices, Talia may be the best since Esiason, as in Boomer Esiason, as in the great former Maryland quarterback, Boomer Esiason. Talia Tungavailoa was outstanding on Saturday. I'm going to talk a lot about him later in the show. A tweet from suffering WFT fan, give a ton of credit to that D, caused four turnovers and three points allowed in the second half. Winning football. Yes, it was. Tweet from Marco, I loved the throwback unis. Yes, I love those uniforms too. That's the classic thing of everything old is new again. It was 10 years ago this weekend, Labor Day night 2011, that Maryland in Randy Edsel's first game as Terrapins head coach beat Miami in College Park. And that night, in a lot of ways, was the coming out party for Maryland and, you know, these like eye-popping uniforms from Under Armour. If you remember that game, if you remember those uniforms, the Maryland Pride uniforms. Now, personally, I never had a problem with the extravagant uniforms, all right? All of the colors and the designs and everything else. Like, I think that stuff is a marketing tool. The athletes get into it. So if they have fun with it, that's fine. However, as time goes on and everybody 
is doing stuff like that. It does get played out. And so something like what Maryland wore this past Saturday, those classic old school Maryland Terrapins uniforms, I thought those looked sharp. I'm with you, Marco. I really like those uniforms. A tweet from Frankie Santangelo. Commission flex slash position flex. Darn it, Galdi. (laughs) This is constantly stuck in my head. Uh, That's okay, Frankie. That's okay. Don't fight it. Accept it. Let the phrases dominate your mind. That's okay. That's a good thing. Not a bad thing. Position flex. Yes, position flex, Ron Rivera. The only thing better than position flex is commission flex. And the originator of commission flex is John Grandlin of Real Broker. Listen up if you're looking to sell your home. The days of some flat commission rate, regardless of how easy it is to sell your home, are over. Don't accept anything less. John G is changing the game with his groundbreaking concept of commission flex. What is commission flex, you ask? It's simple flexible commission rates. You see, not every house requires the same amount of work or money spent marketing. So why should you pay the same fees? It doesn't make sense. It's never made sense. If your house is going to sell in six minutes, you shouldn't have to pay 6%. John Granlin will put together a marketing plan for you that will maximize your home's value and help you keep more of your hard-earned equity in your pocket. You see, John Granlin has a menu of commission packages from which you can choose, including selling your home for free. Yeah, zero commission. Some conditions do apply. But interviewing John Granlin is an absolute no-brainer. He can come by your house and give you a step-by-step plan on what to do to get top dollar, and maybe even more importantly, what not to do so you don't spend needlessly and there is never any obligation to list or sell. If you need to sell your home and aren't sure to whom to turn, if you've been trying to sell your home and you're not satisfied with how things are going, if you're even just thinking about selling your home, do yourself a favor, call John Granlin and see what he can do for you. This is a phone call that could make and or save you tens of thousands of dollars. You owe it to yourself to make this call. You have nothing to lose. John Granlin's a great guy, very easy to talk to, big Washington football team fan, big Nationals fan as well. So here's the phone number, 703-537-6747. When you talk to John G., make sure that you tell him that Al Galdi sent you, and make sure that you ask John G. about what you keep hearing about on the Al Galdi podcast, Commission Flex. That phone number again, 703-537-6747, or visit johngsellsforfree.com. That's johngsellsforfree.com. John Grandlin, nobody will do a better job of selling your home, and never forget, he is the originator of Commission Flex. Position flex. Yes, Ron. Just like position flex. All right. So if you caught the very last segment, the goodbye segment of Friday's show, episode 137, you heard me talk about something that Ron Rivera said at his post-practice press conference on Thursday, a tease of something that was coming. Here was that tease from Ron. We're looking at a couple positions right now, and you guys will hopefully have something shortly to write about as far as that's concerned. But right now, you know, I don't want to talk about it because we're still trying to work through some things. 
Okay, so that was Ron on Thursday. Uh, like I said, I hit on that in the final segment of Friday's show. See, this is why you have to listen to every segment of every show. Uh, and then on Friday afternoon, we got an announcement from the Washington football team. It had signed kicker Eddie Pinheiro to the practice squad. Yes, Washington has signed a kicker. Washington has brought in competition for Dustin Hopkins. Hopkins delivers. Well, we'll see if Hopkins delivers, but it's now clear that he has competition and he needs to deliver. And this cracks me up because Ron Rivera for weeks told us that he wasn't worried about Hopkins. Talked about how the field goal operation was what needed work. The operation being the kicker, Hopkins, the holder, Tressway, and the long snapper, the cheese man, Cameron Cheeseman. We all know that Dustin Hopkins had a very uneven 2020 season. Heck, he has had a very uneven six seasons as Washington's kicker, and yet there was no competition, despite Ron constantly preaching competition, even at quarterback. We went through all of the offseason, no competition at kicker. We went through all of training camp, no competition at kicker. We went through all of the preseason, no competition at kicker. And then on the Friday of Labor Day weekend, nine days before the start of Washington's regular season, all of a sudden, there's a competition. Now understand, Washington has not practiced since last Thursday. There were no Washington football team practices Friday through Sunday as mandated by the collective bargaining agreement. So I don't get the sense that we're now this week going to have a kicking competition. What Eddie Pinheiro is, I believe, is Dustin Hopkins' insurance. Uh, I'd be surprised if Dustin Hopkins isn't Washington's kicker for the regular season opener against the Los Angeles Chargers at FedEx Field this Sunday afternoon at 1. It just feels like this would be too out of the blue to all of a sudden now initiate a competition just a few days away from the season opener. But if Hopkins struggles in that game against the Chargers, I would not be surprised if Eddie Pinheiro is Washington's kicker in week two, when Washington hosts the New York Giants on Thursday night football just four days after that opener against the Chargers. Let's make something clear. You don't sign a kicker to your practice squad for like developmental purposes, okay? Like some guys are on your practice squad to grow and learn and develop. Uh, You don't bring in a kicker to grow and learn and develop. You sign a kicker to your practice squad to at least serve as insurance for the kicker on your active roster, if not serve as competition for the kicker on your active roster. Dustin Hopkins now is officially on notice in a manner in which he has not been on notice in years. And that's a good thing. He should be on notice. I'm just wondering <laughs> what the heck took so long? You know, where was this in the offseason, in training camp, in the preseason? And look, I'm rooting for Dustin Hopkins. Dustin Hopkins seems like a great guy. You know, I don't root for people to fail, especially people on my favorite NFL team, the Washington football team, the team with no name. I'd love to see Dustin Hopkins kill it this coming season and shove it back in all of our faces. But he's a question mark. He's unreliable. He's inconsistent. How many more years of this do we have to go through? And that's not to say that Eddie Pinheiro is some, you know, rock of Gibraltar in terms of consistency, but at least he's an option. So the 2021 season would be Eddie Pinheiro's age 26 season. Pinheiro was waived by the Indianapolis Colts on August 24th. They had signed him in May, but Pinheiro did well 
in the 2021 preseason, four for four on field goals over two games with the Colts, including nailing a third quarter 50-yard field goal in a 12-10 win at the Minnesota Vikings on August 21st. Now, Pinheiro has only attempted a field goal in one NFL regular season, the 2019 regular season, during which he was the kicker for the Chicago Bears for all 16 games. 23 for 28 on field goals was Pinheiro that season. He went just 3-7 on field goals between 40 and 49 yards, but he did go 2-2 for on field goals of at least 50 yards. Uh, Pinheiro entered the NFL in May 2018 as an undrafted free agent with the Oakland Raiders. Look, Eddie Pinheiro is far from a sure thing. He does not have some lengthy track record of success. As I have said, Ron should not just cut Dustin Hopkins to cut him. You can do worse than Dustin Hopkins, and the nightmare scenario is cutting Hopkins and then Washington's next kicker being worse. But you also can do better than Dustin Hopkins, and that's why the lack of competition for him has never made sense to me. I do think that Hopkins will be Washington's kicker in week one, but beyond that, is anyone's guess? Well, what should never be a guess is your health, including the health of your skin. And if you have questions or concerns about your skin health, including if you're dealing with skin cancer, always know that Dr. George Verghese is there for you. He is the medical director for the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland. He's a board-certified dermatologist and Mohs surgeon. He's a big fan of the Washington football team as well. The Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland focuses on medical dermatology and skin cancer diagnosis and comprehensive care, including something really special and cutting edge called superficial radiation therapy, or SRT. SRT is an alternative to surgical procedures for basal cell and squamous cell skin cancers. SRT is revolutionary. It's a non-surgical skin cancer treatment that's safe and effective. You see, having skin cancer doesn't mean having to have surgery and the downtime and side effects that go with surgery. You have options. Understand that a non-surgical option in SRT is available. Dr. George Verghese and the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland offer SRT, unlike many other dermatology practices in the area, and SRT is covered by most insurances. To find out more, call 301-396-3401. Make sure that you tell them that Al Galdi sent you. That phone number again, 301-396-3401, or visit midatlanticskin.com. That's midatlanticskin.com. Dr. George Verghese in the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland, nationally recognized for treating skin cancer across the Mid-Atlantic region. All right, it is a special week, the week of the start of the 2021 NFL regular season. The Washington football team will begin its regular season Sunday afternoon at 1 against the Los Angeles Chargers at FedEx Field. And so a week this special is worthy of a special guest on the podcast and very pleased to welcome right now Dan Pizzuta, writer and editor for Sharp Football Analysis, one of the best NFL analytics sites out there. That's the uh, Warren Sharp site. Uh, but Dan also wrote the chapter on the Washington football team for Football Outsiders Almanac 2021. So we're going to engage in some high-level WFT talk right now as we're on the doorstep of the start of the regular season. Dan, it's great to have you on, man. How are you? Uh, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate yeah. it. And uh, football is getting close, so this is exciting. 
It is a great week here. So I believe that nothing matters more for Washington on the field this coming season than the quarterback play being better. I do believe that Ryan Fitzpatrick can provide significantly better quarterback play than Washington had last season when Washington's quarterback play was abysmal. Uh, That said, as you noted in your chapter on Washington in Football Outsiders Almanac 2021, historically, the worst time to invest in Fitzpatrick is right after he has played well enough to get paid. Uh, He has played well over the last three seasons. He did get paid by Washington this past offseason, albeit in relatively modest fashion, a one-year, $10 million deal. What kind of a season do you think that we're going to get from Ryan Fitzpatrick? It's probably going to be, you know, fine if that's a, you know, that's not a very optimistic word, but I think that's kind of what you can expect. And I mean, the great thing, like, you know, you just said what I noted in the chapter, fine is a significant improvement over what they had last year. So I'm not sure if you can expect like as many of the highs as maybe Fitzpatrick has had over the past couple of seasons. I'm not quite sure you're going to expect you know, some of the lows that he's had, but I think he can bring, you know, average to above average quarterback play. Um, and with the, the weapons uh, Washington has right now, that's such a big step up from, from what Washington had. Uh, last year. So I, I think you don't need to be great at quarterback right now in order for Washington to have uh, a passable offense that's that'll help the team. So one of the things that you noted about Fitzpatrick in the chapter on the Washington football team and Football Outsiders Almanac 2021 was the insane extent to which Fitzpatrick thrived under pressure last season, an 8.3% DVOA under pressure, easily the best in the NFL among qualified quarterbacks last regular season. We know that play under pressure is not something that is sustainable and projectable from year to year. Is that what concerns you the most about Fitzpatrick going into this season, this idea of him being unlikely to duplicate that which he did so well last season? Yeah, that that was a big thing. I think when people were kind of comparing what Fitzpatrick was in that Miami offense, like compared to to Tagovailoa, when you looked at you know like what they were doing from a clean pocket and kind of everything in structure, the two were actually quite similar. Uh, and where Fitzpatrick was much better was under pressure and by you know yards per play. Fitzpatrick was actually better under pressure than he was uh, not under pressure, and that's something that's just not sustainable. I think when you look at a lot of you know studies that have happened play from a clean pocket is what is going to be more projectable, you know, for the future. Fitzpatrick has never been a guy who's consistently been great under pressure. So if you can see like Patrick Mahomes over the past couple of years, the guy who's still consistently great under pressure. So you can kind of expect him to be able to do that. Fitzpatrick isn't that. So he was more around that average to above average just from a clean pocket. So I think when, when you're projecting that, I'm not, it's kind of brings into some of the highs, right? When you think of Fitzpatrick last year, like that, when you think about what his season was, it's that play against the Raiders uh, where his face match being held and he's throwing that bomb that, that ends up, you know, uh, giving them the lead and winning the game for them. Um, it, it's not so much going to be, you know, plays like that. So, but I think he's going to have a slightly better structure uh, with some, you know, better uh, receivers in Washington. So I think all of that kind of goes into, you know, what you can expect from Fitzpatrick. It's not going to be as great as it was last year. So if you're looking at his 2020 and some of the stats he put up, I'm not sure it's going to be that. But like I said, again, uh, it doesn't have to be that to be a huge improvement for Washington. 
For those listening, why is play for a quarterback in a clean pocket more telling than play under pressure? It's just something that's you know more consistent. It's more in the quarterback's control, uh, right? So it's things that are in structure how he's you know playing the offense as it's designed. When it's under pressure, there are a lot of variables there, um, and I just think you see like see that you know play uh, the the Raiders play it is a great play from Fitzpatrick. If he has to do that, attempt that play ten more times, is he? completing it any other times than the one he did. So it's kind of just things like that. So there have been a lot of studies uh, in this and just uh, play from a clean pocket how uh, these quarterbacks are playing inside of structure. That has more to do with how they are actually handling the quarterback position, what they're asked to do. And when you are adding a lot of the factors in under pressure, how they're moving uh, out of the pocket, how the receivers are reacting to the pressure, there's just a lot more up in the air for that. And it's just not as projectable. Um, So you can still, you know, think some guys are going to be uh, good under pressure. I think the thing under pressure you want to look at is how, uh, whether quarterbacks are, um, limiting the terrible plays under pressure. I think that's more of what you should be looking at when you're trying to think about how quarterbacks are going to handle pressure from year to year is that they can eliminate the bad plays. And sometimes Fitzpatrick's not quite able to do that. So that's a little uh, concerning there. Uh, But when you are looking at things, it is going to be what he's going to be able to do uh, in structure. And Fitzpatrick was, was fine there, just not as great as when you're factoring in some of the pressure he had last year. It's interesting with him because he's become almost like an analytics darling over the last few years. Like if you go by ESPN's total QBR, Fitzpatrick has been top eight in the NFL each of the last two seasons. His three highest graded seasons for pro football focus have been each of the last three seasons. Do you feel like the analytics overstate what Ryan Fitzpatrick has been? Or has he in fact been better than the reputation suggests? So I think that uh, oh, probably a little bit of both. I, I would say that his past couple of years have been you know his best years um, of his career in, in the way he's been able to push the ball downfield. You know, with with Tampa Bay, uh, you know, he had some great receivers there. Was able to you know throw down the field uh, a little more, and then with Miami, it was something similar. So I think he has been able to figure out what works for him, but also, you know, he hasn't really been the, the full-time starter in all of those places. There was always, you know, some kind of contingency a plan with him, whether it was, you know, a backup someone was ready to put in after him or he was filling in for someone else. So this is really, uh, as I noted in the chapter, the first time someone's really committing to, you know, the 16 or actually 17 games now of Ryan Fitzpatrick. So I think he has figured some things out. He's not completely, you know, the turnover prone, you know, journeyman that, you know, we saw maybe early in, you know, the Buffalo or or the Jets days. Um, But I think there are still some pieces to him uh, of that game. But as you said, the past three years have have really been his best. So um, whether that's going to, you know, continue for, you know, a guy in his, you know, late thirties, or whether that's going to, you know, keep moving up in that direction uh, is, is something you're going to have to watch. We're talking Washington football team with Dan Pizzuta, writer and editor for Sharp Football Analysis, also wrote the chapter on the Washington football team for Football Outsiders Almanac 2021. So it sounds like you are bullish on Washington's offense in large part because of the playmakers. What jumps out at you in terms of looking at some of those Washington skill position players? 
I mean, you can start with Terry McLaurin, who is you know just incredible. He's you know, really since his rookie year been one of my favorite receivers to watch. I think he's you know, so smooth with with his route running, and then when you add in uh, his speed on top of that, he just hasn't had a quarterback who's been able to get him the ball uh, consistently. And then I like what they did to build around him. You know, the past you know his first two years were really it was Terry McLaurin and, and not a lot else. Uh, but when you add in you know, Curtis Samuel, whether you know, uh, he's going to be uh, healthy enough to play. I know that's been uh, a thing to watch so far during the preseason, um, but I like what he's going to be able to do. And it, you know, you can see what his role is going to be, how much they're going to use what he did under Scott Turner. Uh, but he was a little better with how he was used under Joe Brady uh, last year in Carolina. So if they can mix some of those two roles, I think you can potentially get uh, the best of you know Curtis Samuel. Uh, I think their their other outside receivers have been good. I'm a big fan of uh, Diami Brown. Uh, who they drafted out of North Carolina. I think the explosiveness there is going to fit really well uh, with Fitzpatrick. Uh, you know, Antonio Gibson looks like he's uh, a buddy star at, at running back. So I just think there's there's so many more pieces uh, now that they've they've kind of added and have developed uh, where I think this is easily uh, the best skill position uh, group that Washington has had in at least a couple of years. So Ron Rivera has said the team made a concerted effort this past offseason to get faster at receiver now has three burners at receiver in Terry McLaurin, Curtis Samuel, and Deami Brown. I mean, speed obviously is a good thing. Nobody would say it's a bad thing. But when it comes to receiver, like is speed something that truly translates to success? Or is it more just kind of a nice thing to have, but it's not necessary for a receiver to end up having success? Yeah, I, I think it's you know somewhere in the middle. Speed is great, but you kind of have to know how to use it. I think we've you know seen some of these guys uh, who are running a, a fast forty. That does not necessarily mean it's going to translate into knowing how to use you know how to you know run routes or be a good receiver. And I think you see a guy like Terry McLaurin, he uses both of them so well. I don't think his speed uh, would be quite as good if he wasn't as good of a route runner uh, as he was. Um, so I think, you know, you see guys who have kind of missed a little bit, like, you know, uh, John Ross, a couple years ago, a guy who can, you know, run in a straight line really fast, but doesn't quite know the nuances uh, at receiver. But then you look at the guys like, you know, uh, Devontae Adams, or you know, uh, Keenan Allen, uh, who I think Terry McLaurin is, is kind of like in his, able, his ability to get off the line and set up some corners. Uh, the, the difference is McLaurin does run like a, a 4-3. Uh, Keenan Allen ran about a 4-6. But at receiver, if you know the nuances and how to set up these corners, it's not really going to matter how fast you are in a straight line if you can create separation i think what's great with these um these washington receivers now is they do have that speed uh but they also have some of the nuances to create separation so when you're winning in both of those areas that can be a really exciting to watch so with mclaurin you wrote a really good article on him uh came out last november on sharp football analysis headline terry mclaurin is a star without much help uh yes he was there's no question about that but you did a deep dive on McLaurin, and you noted in the article how McLaurin's percentage of catchable passes was well below the league average, but also how McLaurin was creating more on short targets than any other receiver in the league. I just wonder if you could speak to those things and some of the other things that stood out to you in putting together this article. Yeah, I think it's just one of the things where you know he, we could tell how good he was, and it was just he wasn't putting up you know, huge numbers, although he's still one of the few um, 
uh, receivers who have been able to put up uh, over 2,000 receiving yards uh, in his first year. And I think he's one of you know two or three uh, since the merger to do so from the third round or later. So he's still you know putting up uh, pretty good numbers, but it could have been so much more uh, over his past couple of years if it wasn't really for the quarterback play and what they really um, you know were relying on him. And as much as that deep speed could help, they, they couldn't really connect there because there wasn't enough accuracy there. And but what he was really good at is like said some of those slants right and i'm from the new york area and you know that was really the odell beckham thing uh a couple years ago during his first couple years in new york where the offense was uh, a slant to beckham and and pray that he breaks one and that kind of is what mccorn was doing kind of early on in his career and the one thing was he was very good at setting up some of those slants and getting yards after the catch and creating uh, angles and changing the geometry for uh, some defenders where they just uh, couldn't catch him. So that was a big part uh, of his game. Now, I think with Fitzpatrick, they'll be able to add a little more, you know, into the intermediate and the deep passes where he's going to be able to, you know, get some more of those chunk plays without having to completely create them himself. But he was so good at creating them himself and he bailed them out uh, in a couple situations where they really didn't have a lot of other answers. So I think when you add that type of playmaking ability in with better quarterback play, uh, better receivers around him, I'm expecting a really big season from Terry McLaurin. When it comes to Washington's defense, one of the things that you wrote about in your chapter on Washington in Football Outsiders Almanac 2021 was the plexiglass principle, which states that a team that significantly improves in a phase of the game in one season tends to see a decline in that phase the following season, basically because significant improvement tends to be a function in part of some luck. Do you see Washington's defense this coming season off the remarkable improvement last season regressing or not necessarily? Yeah, so I, yeah, I feel like I'm, I'm answering a lot of questions with it. It's somewhat in between, but I think this thing is I, a lot of people are looking at this Washington defense, seeing how good it was last year and how they improved in some positions. I even noted this in the chapter when you can replace, you know, Ronald Darby with William Jackson. I think that's a big step up. They can play a little more man defense than they were able to last year. And even though the secondary was very good last year against the pass, they were still one of the worst teams in the league against, you know, number one wide receivers. So I think what the plexiglass principle really is saying is, you know, even if there is, you know, some regression, it's not necessarily meaning Washington's defense is all of a sudden going to be average. It's just basically that, you know, development and progression isn't exactly linear. So if we saw Washington as, you know, a top five defense last year, that doesn't necessarily mean because they improved some of the personnel, they're going to be, you know, a top one or two. Uh, I There's some similar teams that were in that chapter where they took a similar uh, leap up from one year to the other. They were in, you know, similar um uh, age as what Washington was, and that was you know San Francisco and Tampa Bay over the past couple of years, and they were still able to be top ten defenses, uh, even though they jumped to you know that big leap brought them to you know top five. So even if Washington's still a top ten defense, that's still very good, and it's still technically regressing a, a little bit off of what they were statistically last year. But as I also noted, you know, Washington doesn't have to have the top defense in the league with this offensive improvement. They had to have a great great defense last year because of the offense but this year with a little more help from uh 
from the offense, uh, that defense can still be pretty good. Uh, and this will be plenty for the Washington to be competitive, uh, even in, especially in the NFC East. One of the big things in NFL analytics in recent years has been pass rush versus pass coverage, and more and more people are coming around to the idea of, well, actually, in today's NFL, pass coverage may matter more than pass rush. Washington, in recent years, has invested a lot up front, uh, has spent a lot of first-round picks on defensive linemen, is starting to spend real money on those defensive linemen, gave Jonathan Allen a big-money contract extension this summer. In today's NFL, is it wise to be spending a lot of draft capital and salary cap space on the big boys up front with the importance now of pass coverage? Or is it still kind of a thing of, look, you want both to be good, so it's okay to try to load up up front so long as you're not ignoring the back end? Yeah, I I think that's kind of where it is. And I I think a lot of that where, you know, there have been some analytic studies and and a lot of debate in a vacuum. I think you would want to go heavier into, you know, a past coverage uh if you can be a, if you could ideally be a team like the ravens who have you know great cornerbacks and they're just going to blitz anyone uh from that defense i think that's kind of where some of the best modern uh defenses have been been coming from but when you look at what you know washington has done you're obviously going to want to continue to build uh, in the way they have i think what is great is everyone on that defensive line does have pass rush ability, um, especially you know in the interior. So even though they are spending there, that pass rush is still getting there. And when you have those interior rushers, they can create pressure a, a little quicker, muddy the middle of the pocket, which I think we kind of know uh, makes it a little tougher uh, for a quarterback because he doesn't really have as many areas to escape. I think sometimes when you're looking at some of that quick edge pressure, the quarterback can step up. Uh, but when you are uh, eliminating those lanes for the quarterback to step up, I think that that really uh, impacts the quarterback a lot. So um, part of that, you know, the the coverage versus pass rush is how we're seeing uh, so many more uh, quick passes and RPOs and things. But with this Washington pass rush, I mean, you have Sweat and Young, they're getting to the quarterback quickly. They have two of the best get-offs, uh, I think, on the defensive line. So uh, they're still bringing uh, an area of defense that can definitely uh, impact a, a quarterback. And they're doing it so well. And they're going to be dominating uh, up front. And, and they still have they have a really good secondary behind them. I think they do have some pieces, especially if they maybe play a little more, you know, three safety looks. I think they could have, you know, some modern coverages in the back. And they already did that. I think they played a little more quarters uh, last year than they had in, in years past. So they do have a pretty good modern uh, secondary behind this. And now they just have that added pressure up front. Yeah, and Washington was able to generate pressure last season without blitzing much, which is obviously something that's advantageous to a defense. So you mentioned you're from the New York area. Uh, You also wrote the chapter on the Philadelphia Eagles for Football Outsiders Almanac 2021. It's amazing. No team has won back-to-back NFC East titles since the Eagles won three consecutive NFC East titles 2002 through 2004. How realistic, in your opinion, is Washington ending that drought this coming season and winning a second straight NFC East title. Yeah, I would say they have a pretty good shot. Um, I think it's going to, I think, depend on the health of 
Dak Prescott uh, in Dallas, if he can stay healthy and that offense can be uh, what a lot of people are expecting that could be uh, at full health and maybe that defense isn't as completely atrocious as it was uh, last season. It could just be, uh, I think, they're kind of the, the Washington offense uh, of of that side of the ball in Dallas. Uh, but I, I think it's it's going to be you know pretty close with, with Washington and Dallas. So I think right now, Washington probably has you know, as good a chance as there probably has been uh, in a couple of years uh, of repeating because they did take something that worked really well uh, last year and they improved upon it in, in significant areas too. So uh, I would expect them, uh, I'm not sure they're you know going to suddenly leap up to be you know one of the top teams in the NFC, uh, but I think they definitely have a pretty good chance of being on top of the NFC East again. Excellent. Dan Pizzuta, writer and editor for Sharp Football Analysis, did a great job writing the chapter on the Washington football team for Football Outsiders Almanac 2021. Big fan of your work, man. Thanks so much for coming on. Really appreciate it. Hi, thank you very much. Appreciate it. All right. Good stuff from Dan Pizzuta. He is an expert, just like the folks at Weedman are experts at lawn care. You see, Weedman will care for your lawn so that you don't have to. Weedman provides what your lawn needs to look great. Fertilization, weed control, aeration, seeding, and a variety of other services. If you don't have the time or the knowledge to make your lawn look great, no worries. Enjoy your weekends and let Weedman take care of your lawn. Weedman is a national network of locally owned franchises, so you'll receive the personal service that you deserve. You see, Weedman answers your phone calls and emails promptly. Weedman does what it says that it's going to do. And I know all of that sounds simple, right? And it is simple, but it's actually not nearly as common as it should be. When you call Weedman, you're speaking to someone in an office in your area, not someone somewhere in like the Midwest. Uh, You're not waiting for like 30 minutes to speak to that someone. And Weedman actually has real answers that have meaning in your area. If you have, say, a certain area on your lawn that needs particular attention, Weedman will take care of that area of your lawn. Weedman is not some huge faceless corporation that treats you like a number. Weedman is there for you. Weedman uses superior products that really improve your soil. And Weedman only treats what needs to be treated. If you're not satisfied with your lawn or with who is treating your lawn, make the switch to Weedman. Weedman's products are of the highest quality. Weedman does not cut corners. And here's the thing. A beautiful spring lawn actually starts in the fall. And so Weedman right now is offering something special to listeners of the Al Galdi podcast. And that something special is a fall tune-up at a great price. An aeration and two fall fertilization services for just $209. That's about $100 off the usual price for those services, and the price applies to lawns of up to 6,000 square feet. Take advantage of this offer. Here's what you do. Call 571-340-3400. When you call, make sure that you mention the Al Galdi podcast so you get this deal. Again, an aeration and two fall fertilization services for just $209. And again, that's about $100 off the usual price for those services. That phone number again, 571 571- 340-3400, and make sure that you mention the Al Galdi podcast so you get that special deal. You can also Google Weedman and make a web request. Just make sure that you mention the Al Galdi podcast so you get the deal. Weedman, a great lawn at a great price with great personal service. 
All right, time now to talk college football week one. Big wins for Maryland and Virginia Tech over the weekend. I'll get to the Hokies next segment. I'll also talk Navy and Virginia. But right now, we talk turtles. And what a job by the Terrapins. Maryland beginning its season with a 30-24 win over West Virginia at Capital One Field at Maryland Stadium on Saturday. Now, this was a great win for the Terrapins. You do, though, have to inject this into the mix. Is this going to ultimately prove to be an encouraging early season win in a disappointing season? I hope like heck not. I tend to think not, but you do have to ask that question because if you've been a Maryland fan, you know that the last decade or so has been filled with promising early season victories that ultimately end up having taken place in disappointing seasons. 2019, the Terps' second game of that season, a 63-20 annihilation of then number 21 Syracuse in College Park, but the Terps finished that season 3-9. 2018, the Terps' first game was a 34-29 win over then number 23 Texas at FedEx Field. The Terps finished that season 5 and 7. The year before that, 2017, the Terps' first game, a 51-41 win at then number 23 Texas. The Terps finished that season 4 and 8. Heck, 2011, the Terps' first game with Randy Edsel as head coach was a 32-24 win over Miami in College Park on Labor Day night 2011. The Terps though finished that season 2 and 10. And by the way, did you see the news that was announced on Sunday, Coach Edsel, who is uh, UConn's head coach, he announced that after 17 years of service at the University of Connecticut as its head football coach, I've decided to retire at the end of the season. Will there be a special retirement banquet for Randy Edsel in College Park, Maryland? I'm guessing probably not, uh, but we shall see. But anyway, yeah, man, three of the last four seasons have featured Maryland authoring an encouraging early season win only to see the Terps end up finishing with a sub-500 record, 2017, 2018, and 2019. So we'll see what this win over West Virginia on Saturday ultimately proves to be for the Terps. But what we can say with certainty right now is that this was a terrific win. And the reason for the win, more than anything else, was the play of Terps quarterback Talia Tungavailoa. He was outstanding. I said on Friday's show, episode 137, that Maryland's season essentially is going to come down to Talia, who last season at times was spectacular, but who also last season at times struggled. And if we see more of the good Talia as opposed to the bad Talia, then a whole lot of good things are possible for Maryland in 2021. And sure enough, we saw some wonderful things from Talia Tungavailoa on Saturday. He went 26 of 36 for 332 yards. That's 9.22 yards per pass attempt. He had three touchdown passes, no interceptions. He was sacked just twice. He only had three net yards rushing on six carries, but one of his carries was a big third down carry. Final drive of the game, Talia had a fourth quarter, third and three, four-yard shotgun run. And the throwing, my goodness, the throwing. Baby Tua was on fire in this game. First quarter, first and 10, 66-yard shotgun play action touchdown pass 
to receiver Dante Demas Jr., who beat his man, was open, and was hit with a beautiful pass by Talia, who did a really nice job of stepping up in the pocket to evade pressure. Talia's second touchdown pass, a late first quarter, second and eight, 18-yard pistol play-action touchdown pass to tight end Chigozem Okonkwo on a screen with Talia facing heavy pressure. And then Talia's third touchdown pass, a fourth quarter, third and five, 60-yard shotgun touchdown pass to receiver Rakim Jared, who was wide open. Look, Maryland has not had good quarterback play for like forever, okay? I mean, to me, you really have to go back to Scott McBrien in 2003 for the last season in which Maryland enjoyed true high-level quarterback play. Yeah, it's been almost 20 years since Maryland had a quarterback who for a season gave you true high-level quarterback play. Talia has the ability to end this drought. Talia has the ability to play at a high level. Like I said, we saw this at times last season. Now, Maryland only played five games last season. Talia was up and down, but his good was great. Last October 30th, 45-44 overtime win over Minnesota in College Park. This was the biggest fourth quarter comeback win in Terrapin's history. Maryland in this game overcame a 38-21 fourth quarter deficit. Talia led the comeback. He bounced back big time from a woeful debut with the Terps. Finished the game 26-35 for 394 yards, three touchdowns, and an interception. Took just one sack, had eight carries for 59 yards, and two touchdowns. The next game, last November 7th, 35-19 win at Penn State. A big win for the program. Talia in that game, 18-26 for 282 yards, three touchdowns, all of which came on third downs, and no interceptions. He took three sacks in that game. So really good stuff from Talia Tungavailoa against West Virginia on Saturday. And all you can hope for if you're a Maryland fan like me, if you went to Maryland like me, is that Talia keeps it going. But this kid has got a lot of talent, and he's playing in an offense that is loaded in terms of weaponry. And that's another big-time takeaway from this game. We knew that Maryland's receiving core was loaded, but to actually see it on display in that game on Saturday was a lot of fun. Dante Demas Jr., six receptions, for 133 yards and a touchdown. Rakim Jarrett, six receptions for 122 yards and a touchdown. And there's more than just those two guys, but those two guys stood out the most. You have speed, you have dynamic playmaking in that receiving core, and it's a beautiful combo, right? You think about Talia as your quarterback. You think about all of these weapons in the receiving core. You have another good running back in Teon Fleet Davis. Boy, Maryland has churned out a lot of good running backs in recent years. Teon Fleet Davis may well be the latest. He had a game icing late fourth quarter, second and eight, 53-yard under center handoff run, finished the game with 18 carries for 123 yards. And the Terps defense ended up being great in the game. You know, it's a funny game because the game initially looked like it would be a shootout. Terps led at the end of the first quarter 17-14, but part of that had to do with a special teams boo-boo by the Turtles who gave up a 98-yard kickoff return late in the first quarter. That kickoff return set up a first and goal at the Maryland 2 for West Virginia's ensuing possession, which resulted in a touchdown. So that to me is a touchdown that goes on the account of the Maryland defense with a big time asterisk. But even if you count that against Maryland's defense, so the Terps led at the end of the first quarter 17-14, but the Terps held West Virginia to just 10 points the rest of the game, including just three points in the second half. The Terps won the turnover battle for nothing. The Terps had two interceptions and three sacks. Junior defensive back Nick Cross, what a game he had. Team high, six solo tackles 
a second quarter interception, and a first quarter force fumble. And the force fumble was outstanding as Cross blasted Mountaineers receiver Sam James on a second and eight reception for minus three yards to force a fumble that ended up going out of bounds. You also had defensive back Jacorian Bennett with a big time fourth quarter end zone interception with the Terps nursing a 23-21 lead. It's one game we've been duped before into thinking Maryland is back. And then it turns out that Maryland is not so back but really encouraging to see this. Mike Loxley had his team prepared to feel great for Coach Lox. He's worked so hard these last few years. Finally, hopefully, he's got this program going in the right direction. Next up for the Terrapins, home to Howard this Saturday night at 7.30. All right, so Maryland had its big win on Saturday. Virginia Tech with a monster win on Friday evening, the Hokies beginning their season with a 17-10 victory at number 10 North Carolina on Friday evening. And man, did the Hokies need that win. Man, did Hokies head coach Justin Fuente need that win. So the Hokies entered this game 0-7 against top 10 opponents with Justin Fuente as head coach. It was last December 15th, that Virginia Tech Director of Athletics, Whit Babcock, had to announce that Fuente would be back for a sixth season as Hokies head coach. Babcock said that he spent four hours meeting with Fuente the previous day, December 14th. And yes, while the news ultimately was good for Fuente, he was coming back for a sixth season, the fact that Babcock had to A, meet with Fuente for four hours, and B, conduct a press conference announcing that Fuente was coming back told you everything that you needed to know. This is a make-or-break season for Justin Fuente as Tech head coach. And while one win does not make Justin Fuente, this win certainly helps to not break Justin Fuente. We'll see how the rest of the Hokie season goes. But Fuente had Tech ready to play, and play Tech did. How about this? This victory marked the first time that a non-Frank Beamer head-coached Hokies team defeated an Associated Press Top 10 team since October 1964. Wow, that is a whopper of a fact. Uh, the Hokies head coach at that time was Jerry Claiborne, who was Virginia Tech head coach from 1961 to 1970, and then Maryland head coach from 1972 to 1981. So this really was a significant win in multiple ways. Virginia Tech's victory over number 10 North Carolina on Friday evening. And the story of this game by Miles was the Hokies defense. Tech annihilated Tar Heels quarterback Sam Howell. I mean, a lot of people view Sam Howell as the best quarterback in the country, certainly among the best quarterback prospects in the country in terms of the NFL. Well, the Sam Howell stock took quite a hit on Friday evening. Virginia Tech ravaged Sam Howell, held him to just 17 of 32 passing, held him to just 6.5 yards per pass attempt, intercepted him three times, sacked him six times. As the great Iron Sheik likes to say, Tech made Sam Howell humble. Make him humble. Yes, Sheiky baby, make him humble. Amore Barno and Taiwan Garbett put Sam Howell in the camel clutch and made him humble, Sheiky. Make him humble. Yes, Sheiky baby. Thank you. Uh, Amare Barno and Taiwan Garbett are the Hokies' top two edge rushers, and they dominated on Friday evening. Barno was outstanding. Finished the game with one and a half sacks, including a sack strip. 
and three and a half tackles for loss. Bardo last season led all Power Five players and ranked third in the FBS with an ACC high 16 tackles for loss. And Garbutt on Friday evening, two sacks, including a sack strip. Now, Virginia Tech wasn't great offensively in this game, but the Hokies were good enough. And I thought that the Hokies quarterback, Braxton Burmeister, played an efficient game. I mean, was he spectacular? No, but he got the job done. And I thought overall, he actually played pretty well. 12 of 19 for 169 yards. That's 8.89 yards per pass attempt. He had a touchdown. He did have an interception, but he took just one sack. And he also had nine carries for 42 yards and a touchdown. He had a first quarter, second and goal, four yard shotgun touchdown run. And Burmeister had a second quarter, third and goal, 11 yard shotgun touchdown pass to tight end James Mitchell. Uh, Burmeister doing a nice job of scrambling up the pocket and to his right and then firing a bullet to Mitchell in the end zone. Now, it was interesting. Justin Fuente, during his postgame press conference, said that he believed that Burmeister wasn't actually throwing the ball to Mitchell. Uh, there was a lot of traffic in the end zone on the play. Fuente said that he thought that Burmeister was actually throwing to Hokies receiver Tavion Robinson. But whatever the case, that was a touchdown pass. And three snaps prior to the touchdown pass was, to me, Burmeister's best pass of the game. Second and 14, 34-yard shotgun completion to receiver Trey Turner on a beautiful deep pass toward the right sideline to give the Hokies a first and goal at the eight. The other thing with this game was the crowd. That was awesome to see. It was so nice having Lane Stadium in Blacksburg packed with fans. Official attendance was 65,632. You're likely familiar with the Hokies' famous Enter Sandman entrance. A video of that got a lot of run on social media. It was a great scene. The fans were rewarded with a great win. Like we said, we don't know where this is going to ultimately lead for Tech this season. It is plausible that even with this win, Tech ends up having an underwhelming season and Fuente gets fired at the end of the season. But I think this is a talented Virginia Tech team. This is a Hokies team that should win, you know, seven, eight games at least this season. Like, I think Tech has that kind of talent. We'll see how it all translates, but there are plenty of weapons on offense. And while the offense wasn't great on Friday evening, the defense was, and especially facing a guy who, in theory anyway, is one of the best quarterbacks in the country, uh, you don't take that for granted. Now, the Tar Heels did lose a lot of skill position players this past offseason, including, of course, Deami Brown to the Washington football team. But still, Howell is supposed to be awesome. Uh, he looked anything but in this game on Friday evening. Next up for the Hokies, home to Middle Tennessee this Saturday afternoon at 2. Well, what happened to Navy on Saturday? We'll get to that after this. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. 
Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. We continue the college football conversation right now and an atrocious start to Navy season on Saturday. There's no other way to put it. Look, I respect the heck out of Navy football and what first Paul Johnson and now more recently Ken Niamatololo have established. Navy from 2003 through 2019 had 15 winning seasons in 17 years. This is a program that has every excuse in the world not to be great. Service Academy, no athletic scholarships, perpetually undersized, and yet still Navy had had 15 winning seasons in 17 years. Last year did not go so well. Navy in 2020 went just three and seven. The famous triple option offense did not end up producing at the level that we have become accustomed to over the last nearly 20 years now. Well, Saturday was just one game, but it was a game that did not go well. Uh, Navy began its season with a 49-7 loss to Marshall at Navy Marine Corps Memorial Stadium in Annapolis. You know, Navy was only around a two and a half to three point underdog going into this game, but Navy just looked like it did not have a clue for so much of this game. Navy looked all out of sorts for so much of this game. Head coach Ken Niamatololo during his postgame press conference, quote, we got our butts whooped in all facets, coaching offensively, defensively, and special teams. No excuses. We were prepared. We didn't look like we were prepared, having penalties to start drives and inexplicable things happening, delay of game on the punt, kicks blocked. It is the worst that we have been on special teams in a long time. We got our butts whooped, end quote. Yeah, uh, Navy's special teams were some kind of mess. Navy had a late first quarter field goal attempt that was blocked, had a second quarter punt that was blocked. Navy's defense got shredded in this game. Navy allowed Marshall to average 7.37 yards per play and to go six for six in the red zone with all six red zone conversions being touchdowns. You may know this, in college football, uh, red zone conversions include made field goals. So that's different in the NFL. You don't get credit for a successful red zone possession if you only kick a field goal. In college football, things are different. College football counts made field goals on red zone possessions as successful red zone possessions. The NFL only counts touchdowns on red zone possessions as successful red zone possessions. But Marshall on Saturday in this 49-7 win at Navy, six for six in the red zone with all six red zone conversions being touchdowns. Now, Navy did actually move the football. I mean, Navy did rush for 337 yards and a touchdown on 76 carries. That's 4.43 yards per carry. And the rushing yardage total includes Navy taking nine sacks. More on that momentarily. But the problem for Navy was that whereas Marshall was great in the red zone, the midshipmen were not. Navy went just one for five in the red zone in this game on Saturday. If Navy converts more in the red zone, this is actually maybe a more competitive game 
But uh, that did not happen. Navy's defense got shredded. Special teams were a mess. And we got what we got, a 42-point season opening loss for Navy. Now, with the midshipmen's quarterback situation, I said during Goldilocks on Friday's show, episode 137, who the Navy quarterback is matters a lot. In the triple option, it is imperative that you have good quarterback play, uh, primarily because you need a quarterback in running that triple option who knows when to pitch and knows how to manipulate defenses with all that misdirection that comes with the triple option attack. There's also, though, this, while Navy doesn't throw the ball often in the triple option, Navy has for years thrown the ball effectively in the triple option. Well, that did not happen on Saturday. So Navy started Ty Lovatai at quarterback, but ended up playing two other quarterbacks in the game in Xavier Arline and Masai Maynard. Those three guys went a combined 5 of 15 for just 61 yards, no touchdowns, and an interception, and took nine sacks. There's the famous saying in football, right? When you have two quarterbacks, you really have none. Well, Navy on Saturday had three quarterbacks, and the results were not pretty. Ideally, Kenny Amatololo settles on one of these three guys. That guy is able to grow with the offense, and hopefully as the season goes on, the guy becomes outstanding. You know, we've been kind of spoiled with Navy football during this run of nearly two decades now. You know, you think about Ricky Dobbs, you think about Keenan Reynolds, you think about Malcolm Perry. Uh, You know, not everyone is going to play at that level. I understand that. But still, you got to do better than what these three guys ended up combining to do in this game on Saturday. The good news is that this is Navy. And there's not a team in the country with better kids. There's not a team in the country that's going to be more disciplined. Ken Niamatololo is such a good coach. Navy is going to get better. I am not convinced in any way that this Navy team that we saw against Marshall last Saturday is the Navy team that we're going to see for the duration of the season. And I would expect a much better performance for Navy come this Saturday when Navy faces Air Force in Annapolis Saturday afternoon at 3.30 in the first leg of the Commander-in-Chief's Trophy. The game was moved from its usual date of the first Saturday in October to this Saturday. Why? Because this Saturday is September 11th, the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. Also this Saturday is a big game for Virginia. The Cavaliers will be hosting Illinois Saturday morning at 11. Uh, You certainly don't see that often. Uh, This will be the first true game for Virginia this season. Uh, The Wahoos began their 2021 season with what was essentially a scrimmage on Saturday night, a 43-0 blowout of William & Mary, which is an FCS school. Now look, these days in college football, I don't take any win for granted because we've seen all kinds of upsets over the last, you know, 10, 15 years at this point, including FCS teams taking it to FBS teams. So, When an FBS team throttles an FCS team, I don't just say, well, what'd you expect? Like, yes, you expect that, but we've seen some bizarro results in college football in recent times. But yeah, I mean, Virginia should have smashed William & Mary and smashed William & Mary. Wahoo did. Uh, The game was exactly what Virginia wanted the game to be, a no-doubt route. The Cavaliers quarterback, Brennan Armstrong, 21-31 for 339 yards, two touchdowns, no interceptions. He was sacked just once, and he had two touchdown runs. All right, so the Nationals right now are in the midst of a marathon series against the New York Mets at Nationals Park. Five games in four days. The reason for this is that the Nats and Mets still had to make up a game from that season opening series that was postponed due to the Nats' first 
COVID-19 outbreak of the season. Yes, we up until this series still had not made up all three of those games. So this series is a lengthy one, and this series so far has been a wild one. The Nats have lost three of the first four games in this series, but each of the three losses has featured the Nats overcoming a significant deficit. The Nats in their 6-2-10 inning loss to the Mets on Friday night overcame a 2-0 ninth inning deficit. The Nats in their 11-9-9 inning loss to the Mets Saturday afternoon in game one of a doubleheader overcame a 9-0 fourth inning deficit. And the Nats in their 13-6 loss to the Mets on Sunday afternoon overcame a 4-0 first inning deficit. The only game in this series so far in which the Nats haven't overcome a major deficit has been the Nats' lone win in the series, the 4-3-7 inning win over the Mets on Saturday evening in Game 2 of the doubleheader, although even in that game, the Nats overcame a 1-0 first inning deficit. Nats now are 56-80, and dead last in the National League East, with by far the worst run differential in the NL East at minus 79. So there's a lot to what has happened in these games over the last three days. I want to hit on a few major themes. First of all, two big-time disappointing outings by Nat starting pitchers in this series so far. Eric Fetty in Game 2 of the series and Josiah Gray in Game 4 of the series. We'll start with Gray because he pitched most recently. So Josiah Gray on Sunday afternoon was bad for a second consecutive start. This 13-6 loss to the Mets at Nationals Park. Gray allowed six runs in three innings. He gave up seven hits, two homers, two doubles, and three singles. He issued one walk. He had just two strikeouts. He threw 49 strikes versus 33 balls on 82 pitches. Think about that for a moment. 82 pitches over three innings. And Gray struggled from the get-go. He allowed four runs in the top of the first on a double, three singles, a walk, and an RBI sack fly. Gray allowed a run in the top of the second on a one-out full count solo homer by Jonathan Villar. Gray allowed a run in the top of the third on a leadoff homer by Javier Baez on a one-two pitch. So the home run problem continues for Josiah Gray. Yes, an overwhelming majority of the homers that he has allowed as a national have been solo homers, but still, he's giving up way too many home runs. Josiah Gray has thrown 43 innings at the major league level. He has allowed 15 home runs over these 43 major league innings. That is way too many home runs. That works out to 3.14 home runs per nine innings. Now, Davey Martinez, during his postgame press conference on Sunday, talked about Josiah Gray dealing with some mechanical issues. Clearly, he has to get those worked out. You know, we are learning as we go here with Josiah Gray, as he is learning as he goes. So I am by no means going to panic of back-to-back bad starts, but these are back-to-back bad starts. His previous outing came in that 7-4 loss to the Philadelphia Phillies at Nationals Park this past Monday night. Gray in that game, six runs in four innings. So he's given up six runs in each of his last two starts. This off Gray over his first five starts for the Nats, having an ERA of 289. So we'll see here, but it is imperative that Josiah Gray ends up becoming a quality starting pitcher for the Nationals. I think that he will. He's got good stuff. He's very mature. You know, I was watching his postgame press conference from Sunday. I mean, the guy just comes off like he gets it. You know, he comes off smart. He comes off mature. He doesn't come off like some jerk. He doesn't come off like someone who thinks that he knows it all. I think Josiah Gray is going to be a hit 
for the Nationals. Uh, but he does now have back-to-back bad outings, and he's got some mechanical stuff that he needs to clean up. The other disappointing outing in this series so far from a national starting pitching perspective, Eric Fetty. So Fetty in the 11-9, nine-inning loss to the Mets at Nationals Park on Saturday afternoon in game one of a doubleheader. Seven runs, four earned in three innings. Fetty gave up two runs in the top of the first, due in large part to beginning the game by allowing three consecutive singles. Fetty gave up four runs, although only one of them was earned in the top of the second, during which Alcides Escobar did commit two errors. If you watch this game, Alcides like forgot how to field uh, in that inning, but Fetty began the inning by giving up a leadoff homer to Javier Baez to center field. The homer went it projected 406 feet per stat cast. So while, yes, Fetty was plagued by some bad defense by Alcides, also, yes, was Fetty giving up a leadoff homer. And then Fetty gave up a run in the top of the third on a leadoff double by Javier Baez on an 0-2 pitch and a one-out RBI single by Patrick Mazika. Eric Fetty's season continues to spiral downward. He now has made 12 starts since coming off the 10-day injured list, which he was on due to a left oblique strain. Fetty, over those 12 starts, has an ERA of 663. This is a guy who, over his first 10 starts this season, had an ERA of 333. We have gone from viewing Fetty as potentially blossoming this season into finally the quality starting pitcher that he was drafted to be when the Nats took him in the first round of the 2014 MLB draft, to now saying that Eric Fetty may be pitching himself off the Nationals. You know, this continues. I'm not sure how you justify bringing Fetty back next season, at the very least, bringing him back to compete to be in the rotation for next season. Like, this may be Fetty's undoing as a starter at the major league level. We'll see here. And I say that understanding that the Nationals do not have many options right now when it comes to major league starting pitching. But Eric Fetty, for the season, over 23 starts, now has an ERA of 5 27. So rough stuff for Josiah Gray and Derek Fetty in this series for the Nationals with the Mets at Nationals Park. What's funny is that the two guys in this series who big picture shouldn't even be starting for the Nats have given the Nats their two best starts in this series. Josh Rogers and Sean Nolan. Who? What? Yeah, exactly. So Josh Rogers made his Nats debut in the 4-3 seven inning win over the Mets at Nationals Park on Saturday evening in game two of the doubleheader. And Rodgers, all things considered, did well. Three runs and five and two-thirds innings. The line, though, is a bit misleading. He gave up just four hits, a homer, a double, and two singles. He did issue three walks, but he also had five strikeouts, and he threw 57 strikes versus 30 balls on 87 pitches. If you watch the game, he pitched with an enthusiasm that was infectious, and that was like really charming. It was really nice to see something like that. But Josh Rogers, he had not pitched in a major league regular season game since 2019 when he was with the Orioles. Yeah, the name Josh Rogers may strike you as familiar if you're an O's fan or if you at least follow the O's. Josh Rogers is one of the guys who the O's got back from the New York Yankees in the Zach Britton trade in July 2018. So even the pitching-starved Orioles decided to part ways with Josh Rogers. But the Nationals are so desperate for starting pitching this season because their farm system has become so barren when it comes to starting pitching that Rogers now is a starter for the Nationals, at least for the moment, at the major league level. But I thought he did a good job. I mentioned that final line of three runs in five and two-thirds innings being misleading. Uh, I say that because Rodgers allowed two runs in the top of the six on a leadoff single by Michael Conforto and a one-out two-run homer 
by Kevin Pillar. So the homer made things look a lot worse. Now, yes, Rodgers did give up the homer. So, you know, he does end up allowing three runs and five and two thirds. But like I said, all things considered, I thought Josh Rogers did a good job. And Sean Nolan was solid, all things considered, for a second consecutive start. The 6-2-10 inning loss to the Mets at Nationals Park on Friday night. Nolan in that game, two runs and five innings. He gave up five hits, a bloop triple, uh, three doubles, including a bloop double and a single. He had three strikeouts versus one walk, issued a hit by pitch. The problem was that he threw 102 pitches over the five innings. But here's a guy in Sean Nolan who had not pitched in a major league regular season game since October 2015, prior to his contract being selected from AAA Rochester by the Nats on August 11th. He now has made four starts for the Nats. He was not very good over the first two, but he's been actually pretty good over these last two. Another theme for the Nats over the first four games of the five-game series with the Mets, the bullpen cannot be trusted. This is far from new, but this is the case once again this season, and this is really the case right now. As Public Enemy said many years ago, and as I have played on my shows many times over the years, the Nats bullpen you can't trust it. Can't trust it. No, you cannot trust it. Uh, six Nats relievers were used in this uh, 13-6 loss to the Mets at Nationals Park on Sunday afternoon. Four of the six relievers were great. Two of the six relievers were not great. So we'll just take what happened sequentially. Patrick Murphy relieved Josiah Gray, and Patrick Murphy looked really good. Two scoreless innings with two strikeouts. This off what Murphy did in the 6-2-10 inning loss to the Mets on Friday night. Two scoreless innings with five strikeouts. Patrick Murphy is the guy who the Nationals claimed off waivers from the Toronto Blue Jays on August 14th. Now, Murphy with Toronto did deal with control and injury issues, but he was the Blue Jays' number 16 prospect per MLB pipeline at the time. This was a shrewd waiver claim by Mike Rizzo, and Murphy is a flamethrower, and Murphy over these last two outings has looked really good, a combined four scoreless innings with seven strikeouts. Then Mason Thompson came into the game. He tossed two scoreless innings. He looked good. Then Andres Machado came into the game. He did allow a run in the Mets' one-run eighth, so Machado did not do well. He faced four batters, recorded just one out, gave up three consecutive singles, and an RBI sack fly. But then Alberto Baldonado came into the game. This is another one of these guys who the Nationals have summoned from AAA Rochester recently, and Baldonado has looked good, and he was in a tight spot on Sunday afternoon. Entered the game in the top of the eighth with runners on first and second, went out in the Nats trailing 7-6, and Baldonado got out of the jam. He faced two batters, got two outs, including striking out pinch hitter Luis Guillorme on five pitches. We also saw Baldonado, I love saying that name, do well in the 11-9-9 inning loss to the Mets on Saturday afternoon in game one of the doubleheader. Baldonado in that game, two perfect innings with two strikeouts, including striking out Jonathan Villar on seven pitches in the top of the eighth with the automatic runner on second. Baldonado did then throw a wild pitch, but he got out of the inning unscathed. And then we end this 13-6 loss on Sunday afternoon, saw Austin Voth come into the game. And Austin Voth was a complete disaster in what ended up being a six-run Mets ninth. Once again, can't trust it. Can't trust it! No, you can't trust it. Austin Voth allowed six runs on five hits and a walk. He got no outs. That's hard to do. He gave up two homers, 
a first-pitch leadoff homer to Francisco Lindor, and a grand slam to Kevin Pillar. The first pitch that Austin Voth threw resulted in a homer. The last pitch that Austin Voth threw resulted in a homer. In this case, a grand slam. The grand slam, by the way, is the 13th grand slam given up by the Nats this season. That is a special kind of ineptitude. You give up 13 grand slams in a season. Your pitching staff, I mean, the Nats are supposed to be a pitching-based team, right? Especially starting pitching. And yet the Nats this season have allowed 13 grand slams. The major league record for most grand slams given up by a team in a season is 14. By the 1996 Detroit Tigers, the Nats, as we speak on this Monday, on this Labor Day 2021, are at 13 grand slams given up on the season. And the Nationals have only played 136 games. The Nationals have 26 games left in the team's regular season. How many more grand slams are going to be given up by this pitching staff the rest of this season? Austin Voth was atrocious in this game on Sunday afternoon, just like he was bad earlier in the series. Voth in the 6-2 10 inning loss to the Mets on Friday night, four runs, three earned in the top of the 10th on a double, two singles, and two walks, one of which was intentional. You know, we have seen this season the Nationals rotation completely unravel, but we are seeing some bullpen guys completely unravel this season. I would argue we've seen that with Wander Suero, although interestingly, Suero relieved both on Sunday afternoon and did well. Uh, came into the game bottom of the ninth, faced three batters, got three outs. But Suero has not pitched well at all for a while now. And both just looks like a mess here. You know, the more I think about the Nationals, the more I think you really could see a purging of the roster this offseason by Mike Rizzo. And look, it's a roster that Rizzo put together. Rizzo takes a lot of the heat for this season and for the bad state of the farm system and the bad state of the major league roster. But I just think, you know, there was a real aggression by Rizzo in the sell-off, which I applauded. That, to me, was a sign that there's a real recognition within the organization of this team's in a bad way and major change is necessary. And I would not be surprised at all if that carries over to the offseason. And you see a lot of these guys who've been on the Nats for years and just aren't very good. And the Nats have been kind of waiting around on to get good. Uh, those guys being gone, you know, thinking about Eric Fetty, thinking about Wander Suero, thinking about Austin Voth, those types of people. I mentioned Suero pitching well on Sunday. He did struggle on Saturday afternoon, the 11-9-9 inning loss to the Mets in game one of the doubleheader. Suero in that game gave up two runs in two innings. Both runs came in the top of the fourth, during which he gave up a leadoff single to Francisco Lindor, and then a one-out two-run homer to Michael Conforto to right field for a 9-0 Mets lead that the Nats would overcome. Also with the Nats bullpen in this series, the trials and tribulations of the Nats closer, Kyle Finnegan. So Kyle Finnegan in that 11-9, 9-inning loss to the Mets on Saturday afternoon in game one of the doubleheader, got got. Uh, he in the top of the ninth 
allowed two runs, one earned, as he gave up a leadoff two-run homer to Francisco Lindor for an 11-9 Mets lead. Now, Finnegan did bounce back later in the day in game two of the doubleheader, the 4-3 seven-inning win on Saturday night. Finnegan tossed a scoreless bottom of the seventh with two strikeouts. He struck out Javier Baez on five pitches for the second out and struck out Pete Alonso looking on four pitches for the final out. But this is a bullpen right now that just cannot be trusted, okay? And it's not like you could trust the bullpen with supreme confidence prior to the sell-off, okay? Brad Hand had issues. Daniel Hudson had issues as time went on. But this is a bullpen that has been used way too often this season because the starting pitching has been really bad. This is a bullpen filled with young arms, filled with inexperience, and it's showing. Because while some guys are good in some games, not everyone is good in every game. And when you routinely have to use four, five, six relievers in these games— Four, five, six relievers are not going to all have it game in and game out. And we're seeing that in these games. Two, three, four guys will have it. But inevitably, one or two guys, and sometimes more, do not have it. And that's a problem. And the Nationals continue to give up way too many runs, especially in the later innings of games. And the Nats now are down another reliever the rest of the season. The Nationals on Friday reinstated Finnegan from the paternity list, but placed Kyle Finnegan on the 10-day injured list, retroactive to September 1st, with a right UCL sprain. And McGowan has since been transferred to the 60-day injured list. So his season is done. And if you're a baseball fan, you know what UCL means. Uh, UCL is uh, code for Tommy John surgery. Now, we don't know with certainty that Kyle McGowan is going to be needing Tommy John surgery, but right UCL sprain sounds off all kinds of alarms in baseball. And it's a shame. You hate to see that happen for anybody. You know, it's not like McGowan got shellacked in his last outing and his last outing made you think that something was wrong. We saw McGowan pitch in the 12-6 loss to the Philadelphia Phillies at Nationals Park this past Tuesday night. McGowan in that game, top of the eighth, faced three batters, got the final two outs. But he did spend more than a month on the 10-day injured list due to a right bicep strain, July 11th to August 22nd. Not sure that the right bicep strain is connected with the right UCL sprain, but that is something to wonder about. He dealt with that ailment, came off the IL, got used a decent amount by Davey Martinez in recent weeks, and now is out for the rest of the year with a right UCL sprain. And then a third theme for the Nats over the first four games of the five-game series with the Mets, multiple position players are killing it. And we need to note this. You know what's interesting about the Nationals since that sell-off in late July? While the rotation continues to be a mess, and while the bullpen is a mess, and while the Nationals' team defense has really dipped down, the Nationals' offense has been just fine. And in fact, the Nats entered games on Sunday, number 12 in the majors, in team-weighted runs-created plus at 100. The Nationals could actually end this season as a top 10 hitting team in the majors. When we write the epitaph on the Nationals 2021 season, it needs to be noted that offense ended up not really being the problem. Pitching, especially starting pitching, by far was the biggest problem. So Lane Thomas continues to rake like a madman for the Nationals. He is now their every game starting center fielder and number one batter. And he has been so good in this series so far. Thomas in the 13-6 loss to the Mets at Nationals Park on Sunday afternoon. Two for five with a homer and a single. And he made multiple standout defensive plays. 
Thomas, in an ads three-run first, had a leadoff homer to left field of Mets starter Taiwan Walker on a 1-2 pitch. Thomas, in an ads three-run fifth, had a one-out first pitch single. Thomas had a really good outfield assist for the final out in the top of the fifth as he, on a Jeff McNeil two-out single, threw out Javier Baez at third base. And Thomas made a terrific sliding forward backhanded catch in shallow center field on Patrick Mazika's bases loaded go-ahead RBI sack fly in the top of the eighth for a 7-6 Mets lead. Yes, the game ended up getting away from the Nats. Thank you, Austin, both. But in that spot, that's a big catch. Bases loaded. Thomas makes, again, a sliding forward backhanded catch in shallow center to prevent a hit. I mean, that game potentially gets busted open in that inning. Forget about the ninth inning if Lane Thomas doesn't make that catch. Uh, I mentioned Thomas leading off the game from a Nationals offensive perspective with a homer on Sunday afternoon and on a 1-2 pitch. Lane Thomas did the exact same thing in game two of the doubleheader on Saturday. Thomas in that 4-3-7 inning win over the Mets at Nationals Park on Saturday evening. One for three with a homer and two strikeouts. The Internet's two-run first smashed a leadoff homer to center field on a 1-2 pitch from Mets starter Tyler McGill. The homer went a projected 402 feet per stat cast. Thomas in game one of the doubleheader, the 11-9-9 inning loss to the Mets at Nationals Park on Saturday afternoon. Two for four with two singles and an RBI sack fly. And Thomas in the Nats 6-2-10 inning loss to the Mets at Nationals Park on Friday night. One for four with a single and a walk. All this guy does is get on base multiple times every game, it seems. You know, either that or he homers. Lane Thomas, over 77 major league plate appearances with the Nats, has a batting average of 328, an on base percentage of 403, a slugging percentage of 567. You likely know by now the Nats got Lane Thomas from the St. Louis Cardinals for John Lester in what is already yet another classic ninja strike by Mike Rizzo. Yes, that is the sound of the ninja striking. And boy, did he strike with this trade with the Cardinals. Uh, Juan Soto has had another productive series, getting on base like crazy so far. Soto, your Nationals starting right fielder and number three batter in the 13-6 loss to the Mets at Nationals Park on Sunday afternoon. One for four with a two-run single and a walk. He in the Nats. Three-run fifth had a one-out bases loaded two-run single that cut the Nats deficit to 6-5. Soto continues to walk like crazy. I mentioned he had the walk on Sunday afternoon. He, over the course of the doubleheader on Saturday, had four walks over the two games. He also, in an Nats four-run six inning in the 11-9-9 inning loss to the Mets in game one of the doubleheader, had a one-out first pitch RBI infield single off the ex-Nat Brad Hand as Hand failed to make a leaping catch of a high throw from Pete Alonso and Soto in the 6-2-10 inning loss to the Mets on Friday night, one for four, but the one was a solo homer. Uh, Soto in that Nationals rally in the ninth inning, a two-run ninth, smashed a first pitch leadoff opposite field homer of Mets closer Edwin Diaz to left field to cut the Nats deficit to 2-1. The homer only went a projected 349 feet per stat cast, but whatever, uh, the Nats had been like impotent offensively for so much of that game get the two runs in the bottom of the ninth inning, and Juan Soto in that bottom of the ninth coming through big time with that leadoff homer off Edwin Diaz 
to ignite the rally. Josh Bell had a big homer on Sunday afternoon. He was in that starting first baseman at number four batter and Bell in that 13-6 loss in a Nats three-run first inning in the game, a one-out first pitch, two-run homer to center field of Mets starter Taiwan Walker to cut the Nats deficit to 4-3. That homer going a projected 417 feet for StatCast. Bell also drew two walks in the game. Josh Bell now on the season, 24 home runs, and he has gotten his OPS for the season to 800. His OPS for the year now is right at 800. You think about how bad he was in the month of April. He's been a lot better since then, but it's been a steady climb in terms of his overall numbers on the season. So I feel like that's a good milestone here for Josh Bell that we can note coming out of that game on Sunday. The OPS is at 800 on the year. He's he's been at that level or flirting with that level for a while, but he's at that even 800 now through games on Sunday. Alcides Escobar has had a good series for the Nationals. Certainly an eventful series. Uh, He's been the Nats starting shortstop and number two batter in every game in the series. And this guy, like Lane Thomas, keeps getting on base like crazy. Escobar in the loss on Sunday afternoon, one for four with a single and a walk. Escobar in game two of the doubleheader on Saturday evening, two for three with a big two-run homer and a single. The two-run homer coming in the bottom of the fifth, a two-out two-run homer to center field off Mets starter Tyler McGill for a 4-1 Nats lead. The homer going a projected 400 feet for StatCast. Escobar in game one of the doubleheader Saturday afternoon, one for four with a two-run double and an RBI sack fly. He did commit those two crucial errors in the Mets' four-run second inning, but he had that big two-run double. Nats 4-1-6, a one-out bases-loaded two-run double to left field on a 1-2 pitch from Mets reliever Miguel Castro. Alcides Escobar on the season, 336 on base percentage. And we have seen Andrew Stevenson get in on the action in this series. Uh, Stevenson was outstanding off the bench in that 11-9-9 inning loss to the Mets at Nationals Park on Saturday afternoon in game one of the doubleheader. He entered the game in the top of the fourth. Stevenson in an ads three-run fourth through a bases-loaded five-pitch walk. Stevenson in an ads four-run six had a one-out single. Stevenson in an ads two-run seventh, a game-tying two-out two-run homer to right field off Mets reliever Seth Lugo to tie the game at nine and complete the Nats' comeback from a 9-0 fourth-inning deficit. It's been amazing these last few days. We've seen Alcides Escobar homer. We've seen Andrew Stevenson homer. Like, the two most unlikely sources of Nats power each has homered in this series. Uh, That home run for Stevenson just is fourth of the season, but the homer going a projected 402 feet per stat cast. Also from Stevenson in this series, the drama on Friday night, that 6-2-10 inning loss. So the Nats, as mentioned, scored two runs in the bottom of the ninth inning to tie the game. Stevenson, a dramatic flip in scoring in that inning. So Riley Adams in the inning, a game-tying one-out opposite field RBI double to the right center field gap off Mets closer Edwin Diaz on an 0-2 pitch. Scoring from first on the play was Andrew Stevenson, who was serving as a pinch runner, ended up colliding with Mets catcher and former Oriole Chance Sisko, flipped over head first and then scampered back to home plate on his stomach to slap home plate for the run. That was some moment. You talk about drama. I mean, I know the Nats are dead and buried at this point when it comes to postseason contention, but that was quite the exciting moment in that game. Two run bottom of the ninth to force extra inning. Stevenson flipping over head first, scampering back to home plate on his stomach and then slapping home plate for the run. Game five against the Mets at Nationals Park Monday afternoon, Labor Day at 105. Patrick Corbin 
versus Trevor Williams. I mentioned Josiah Gray and Derek Fetty having had disappointing starts in this series so far. I don't know, if Corbin struggles again, do we still count that as disappointing, or does that not fall into the category of expected by now? Patrick Corbin, over 26 starts this season, a 626 ERA, worst ERA among qualified pitchers in the majors. There's not a lot left to say. He's been a colossal disappointment this season. You would love to see him pitch better as the season goes on, so he can at least in some form or fashion, generate something other than terrible feelings about him and his career going into the offseason. But with each passing game, it just becomes less and less likely that he pitches well down the stretch of this season. Corbin, in his last outing, the 12-6 loss to the Philadelphia Phillies at Nationals Park on Tuesday night, six runs in five innings. He gave up nine hits, two homers, two doubles, and five singles. He issued four walks, had four strikeouts, but he threw 53 strikes versus 40 balls on 93 pitches. It has been a good weekend for the Orioles. How often have we said that this season? So let's say it again. It has been a good weekend for the Orioles. They won two of three games at the New York Yankees. A 4-3, 11-inning loss on Friday night, but then a 4-3 win on Saturday afternoon and an 8-7 win On Sunday afternoon, three one-run games, two Orioles wins, which were the last two games. And so, Joe Angel, if you would. And the Orioles again in the win column. Yes, Joe. Yes, they are. O's now a Major League worst 43 at 92 with a Major League worst run differential of minus 233. Big offensive series for three Orioles in particular, Austin Hayes, Cedric Mullins, and Trey Mancini. So three guys very much worth paying attention to. Hayes in the series, five for 14 with a homer, a double, three singles and a walk. Hayes in the 8-7 win on Sunday afternoon, a leadoff homer in the top of the second, and a first pitch single in the Orioles' four-run seventh inning. You know, Austin Hayes has 15 homers this season. The problem is the rate stats aren't very good. His on-base percentage is just 297. His slugging percentage is just 433. He is such a good defensive corner outfielder. All you need is for the offense to be passable. And I'd say, by and large, the offense is passable. I mean, you definitely want to see that on-base percentage creep up. 297 really is bad. But he does have some pop. 15 homers, and he's done some nice things lately, and he obviously had a good series at the Yankees. Cedric Mullins, of course, has been outstanding this season. He came up big in particular over the final two games of the series. So Mullins in game one went over five with two strikeouts, but Mullins over the final two games of the series, four for nine with a homer, a double, two singles, a walk, and a stolen base. Mullins in the 8-7 win on Sunday afternoon, leadoff five-pitch walk and a stolen base in the top of the first, a one-out first-pitch single in the top of the third, and a two-out two-run homer in the top of the sixth, despite having been down in the count at one point, 1-2. Mullins in this game became just the third player in Orioles history to have a 25-25 season. That's a regular season with at least 25 homers, and at least 25 stolen bases. Mullins, just the third Oriole ever to have a 25-25 season. Don Baylor had a 25-25 season in 1975, and then Reggie Jackson had a 25-25 season in 1976, which was his lone season with the O's. But Mullins has joined 
that exclusive company. Cedric Mullins now on the season, batting average of 305, on base percentage of 369, slugging percentage of 530. And Trey Mancini had a big series. Oh, boom, boom, in this series win at the Yankees. Five for nine with a homer, four singles, and five walks. Oh, boom, boom, got on base like crazy at the Yankees. Mancini in the 8-7 win at the Yankees on Sunday afternoon drew two walks and a hit by pitch. Mancini in the 4-3 win at the Yankees on Saturday afternoon got on base five times. He had three singles and two walks. And Mancini in the 4-3, 11-inning loss at the Yankees on Friday night got on base three times. He had a leadoff single in the top of the second, a two-out two-run homer in the top of the sixth, and a two-out intentional walk in the top of the eighth inning. It's been kind of an up and down season for Trey Mancini. But of course, when you consider the guy missed all of last season due to freaking colon cancer, uh, anything this guy is giving you this year should be perceived as a plus. And Mancini does have a 780 OPS on the season. As far as the Orioles starting pitching in the series, we'll work backwards here. So Keegan Aiken did struggle for the first time in three starts. Aiken was the Orioles starter in this 8-7 win at the Yankees on Sunday afternoon. He gave up four runs in four innings. Now, he only gave up three hits, but one of them uh, was a grand slam. So that's a problem. Uh, Keegan Aiken giving up a one-out full count grand slam to Gary Sanchez in the bottom of the second inning. Aiken also issued two walks and a hit by pitch. He did have five strikeouts, uh, but he threw 86 pitches over the four innings. Remember, Keegan Aiken had been so bad this season up until his last two starts in which he had done quite well. Uh, Aiken in a 4-2 win at the Toronto Blue Jays this past Tuesday night. One run in five innings. Aiken in a 13-1 win over the Los Angeles Angels at Oriole Park at Camden Yards on August 26th. Best outing of his major league career. One run in seven innings on six strikeouts. Chris Ellis teased a no-hitter in the 4-3 win at the Yankees on Saturday afternoon. In fact, he exited the game in the midst of a no-hitter. He tossed five scoreless and hitless innings the Yankees didn't get their first hit in the game until there was one out in the bottom of the seventh inning. Now, Ellis was far from dominant. I had zero problem with Brandon Hyde pulling Ellis from this game. Ellis issued three walks and two wild pitches. He had just two strikeouts. He threw just 53 strikes versus 39 balls on 92 pitches. So classic case of just because you're throwing a no-hitter doesn't mean you're killing it. But, I mean, you're doing well, that's for sure. Five scoreless and hitless innings at the Yankees. You take that uh, from Chris Ellis. Chris Ellis is the guy who the O selected off waivers from the Tampa Bay Rays on August 20th. And then we had John Means as the Orioles starting pitcher in game one of the series, the 4-3-11 inning loss at the Yankees on Friday night. And, you know, Means to me was decent for a second consecutive start. Two runs in five innings. He gave up just three hits, a homer, a double, and a single. He had five strikeouts versus two walks, but he threw 93 pitches over the five innings means in his previous outing, a 4-3 loss to the Tampa Bay Rays at Camden Yards on August 28th, two runs in six and a third innings. So, you know, means has been better lately. He still is not the John Means we saw killing it earlier this year. Remember, John Means over his first eight starts of this season, ERA of 121, whip of 071. Uh, we really have not seen that John Means for a while now this year, but of having had some bad outings, it has been good to see him be at least decent here over these last two outings. Oh, by the way, guess who stifled the Orioles' offense in Game 1? Uh, I got a kick out of this. If you've been a hardcore Orioles fan for at least a few years, you likely got a kick out of this. So the Yankees' starting pitcher 
in that 4-3, 11-inning Orioles loss at the Yankees on Friday night was Nestor Cortez Jr. Do you remember Nestor Cortez Jr.? Nestor Cortez Jr. was one of three Rule 5 picks by the O's at the 2017 winter meetings. Dan Duquette used to love himself some Rule 5 picks. Now, one of the rules with a Rule 5 pick is that you have to keep the guy on your major league active roster for the entirety of the next season. Well, Cortez was terrible in 2018 for the O's. The O's did not want to pitch Cortez. The O's tried to bury Cortez on the active roster and could only do that for so long. He, over four and two-thirds innings, allowed four runs on 10 hits and four walks. The O's were trying to contend that season, couldn't stash him, so the O's ended up parting with Nestor Cortez Jr. Well, Cortez, in this Orioles loss at the Yankees on Friday night, like I said, he was the Yankees starting pitcher, and Cortez allowed one run in five and two-thirds innings with seven strikeouts. Are you aware of Nestor Cortez Jr.'s numbers on the year? He has pitched in 67 and a third innings for the Yankees over 17 games, including nine starts. (laughs) I can't believe this. He has an ERA of 267. Pitching for the most famous team in not just Major League Baseball, but maybe in all of professional sports, certainly in North American sports, you can definitely make that case. The New York Yankees, I despise them, but truth is truth. So pitching for that team, pitching in a city that is merciless, pitching in maybe the most brutal division in baseball in the American League East, Nestor Cortez Jr. has an ERA of 267 over 67 and a third innings. You can't make this stuff up. I could not get over that when I saw those numbers. And uh, he pretty much had his way with the O's on Friday night. Again, one run in five and two-thirds innings, seven strikeouts. Next up for the O's, an 11-game homestand, four-game series against the Kansas City Royals, four-game series against the Toronto Blue Jays, three-game series against the New York Yankees. Game one against the Royals is Monday afternoon at 105. Zach Lowther will start for the O's. All right, my friends, that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. So Monday is the day for the Washington football team. I know that Monday is Labor Day. Can we also call it Curtis Samuel Day? Because Monday is the day on which Curtis Samuel is supposed to fully practice or at the very least participate to some extent in team drills. Ron Rivera at his post-practice press conference last Thursday said that we should expect to see Samuel, quote, work back in on Monday with the team, end quote. Is Monday the day on which the longest ramp-up in the history of ramp-ups comes to an end, or does the ramp-up continue? Uh, Also, will be interesting to see what Ron has to say about Dustin Hopkins off Washington signing kicker Eddie Pinheiro. Ted's practice squad. We'll talk about it all on Tuesday's show, episode 139. Have a great rest of your Labor Day Monday, and I'll talk to you on Tuesday. Make you Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. 
From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.